Welcome, my friends, back to From the Bridge. It's Rick Jones. Today's show is all about agencies and the characteristics of an agency person. And I know a little bit about that because I've run agencies for about 35 straight years. We'll talk to my friend Tim McGee, who has worked at both major corporations and also at agencies. And he'll talk about his agency, MSP Sports, and the consortium of other agencies he works with within his system. Since this election is finally over, we'll stay away from politics on today's trip to the soapbox. And we'll take yet another trip on the road with Rick to a great place to eat. I have often given speeches to college students about the personality traits of an agency person, or as I like to say, an agency creature. (laughs) Agency personalities are simply different from corporate personalities. I have seen people move successfully from agency to corporate jobs, and even in some cases from agencies to corporate and back to agencies, but I haven't seen many people that move successfully from a corporate job directly to an agency. It just takes a different kind of personality. So here's some things that you can expect if you go to work at an agency. Number one, lots of adventure and excitement. Agencies are fun. They're creative. Uh, it, there's never a dull moment. Uh, you're going to have a good time working in an agency. Number two, you're going to have variety. There's not any boredom. You're going to get to do a whole lot of different things. A lot of times when you go to work for a corporation, you're going to do one thing over and over again. In fact, a lot of people sometimes will come to me with their resumes and say, hey, Rick, i got five years of experience. And then I'll say, no, no, unfortunately, you have one year of experience repeated five times. That won't happen at an agency. You're going to be subjected to peaks and valleys. It's going to be like being on a roller coaster all the time. Sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. Sometimes clients are happy, most times they're not. Up and down, all around. You're going to have impossible demands. That's what agencies do. You don't get paid to do easy things. You get paid to do hard things. If it was easy, they'd do it themselves. They pay agencies to do the hard things. In fact, let me say this to all of you out there. If you make more than $60,000 a year, you get paid to do hard things, period. You want to do easy things, make $20,000 a year. You can do easy things for that. $60,000 and above, you get paid to do hard things. Quit griping about it. It's just the fact of life. Another trade in an agency is what I call sleep deprivation. (laughs) Uh, You're going to work weekends. You're going to work nights. You're going to do whatever you got to do. In fact, I can tell the great agencies in the morning when someone comes in to clean the office, you find stacks of Uber Eats bags and pizza boxes because no one went home. They stayed and ate that night. Adrenaline is your drug of choice at an agency. You're going to be working all the time. And truly, I think at the great agencies, you're going to have boundless rewards. Okay, what are you not going to get? What do you shouldn't expect? Well, number one, money, at least at first. I like to tell people this story. The first job you have, no matter what they're paying you, first job out of college, you're overpaid. I don't care what they're paying you, you're overpaid because you don't know anything. 
Then, unfortunately, you spend about 35 years being underpaid, and then you get to be my age, and you get to be overpaid again. And so that's what you're looking forward to. You're also at an HCC, probably not going to have an expense account. You're not going to have a company car. You're not going to get a country club membership. Nope, nope, those perks aren't going to be there. You may not even get a title. Everyone knows my title is the captain early in our agency life. Uh, everybody else's uh, business card said crew. <laughs> Finally, somebody came to me and said, Rick, that's clever, but it doesn't really work in the real world. I need to be an account director. And I agreed. Uh, you may not have a direct career path. You, you, you know, Yogi Berra once said, when you come to the fork in the road, take it. That's the agency world. Where can you grab turf? Where can you raise your hand? Where can you say, I can, I can add value? That's how your career path's going to go, but it is not going to go in a sequential straight line. And last but certainly not least, don't get in the agency world if you're looking for security because there's simply no security. We're at the whims of clients, and when clients go away, in many cases, so do jobs. It's just the reality of the business. Uh, but I'm not sure there's much security in any job today, so I guess I'd rather work for myself and control my own destination and my own security more so than leaving it into the hands of someone else. So what are the personality traits of an agency person? I think first and foremost, every agency person needs to be their own entrepreneur. You need to look at how you manage your accounts, your career, your teammates in a way as if it were your own business, because every little account is a business within a business. Number two, you got to be a team player. Uh, we recruit a personality profile at Fishbait, and I've always done this. I recruit people that have played a team sport or in a play or were in the band, because what do you learn from those experiences? You learn how to play together. And in the agency world, you got to play together. The third trait may be the most important trait of all. You are a servant. You serve clients' needs. If you don't like being a servant, you need to probably go work for a corporation and let somebody else serve you. But in the agency world, you got to be a servant. Fourthly, you got to be a juggler. You got to keep lots of balls in the air. You got to keep lots of projects going. You've got to be able to multitask. You need to be a generalist. You need to know a little bit about everything in the marketing communications business. A little bit about advertising, a little about PR, a little about experiential, a little bit about events, a little bit about everything. But at the same time, to be successful, you better become a specialist. You better be great at one thing better than anybody else, whether that's social media or event management or sales. You need to be passionate. If you don't get up every day excited about your job, you should go find another job. And, and you're doing a disservice to your agency if you're not passionate about being there. You got to be resilient. You're going to get nose a lot. You're going to get knocked down a lot. Clients are going to smirk at you a lot. They're going to roll their eyes at you a lot. They're going to ridicule you a lot. It's just the nature of the beast. You got to be resilient. And as far as your career goes, you got to be a little patient. You're probably not going to show up on Monday and be an assistant account executive and be a vice president by Thursday. Just doesn't happen. You're going to have to take your time, get better at your craft, get better every day. And then we'll see what happens. Now, I love working at an agency for the right reasons. I'm a cowboy. 
and it's very difficult to be a cowboy in a corporate setting. My guest angler today is Tim McGee. You've heard me say a couple of things in the past. One is that Peter Drucker once said that culture eats strategy for breakfast every day. And while I agree with that, I also know that strategy really matters too. Secondly, you've heard me say that my friend Bob Heisner, who was a guest last season and is now helping me with a number of projects, is the very best event marketing strategist I've ever known. But one of the best business strategists I know is my guest, Tim McGee. Tim has had a brilliant career on both the agency and the corporate side of our business and now has his own agency, MSB Sports. He's here today to talk about his professional journey and where he thinks the industry is heading. Let's welcome Tim to the bridge. Good morning, Tim. Welcome to the bridge. Hi, Rick. How are you? It's great to be here. Well, it's great to have you. Um, Got a lot I want to cover today. We've been talking a lot about agencies on this show today, and I want to kind of get your perspective because you uniquely have been on both sides of the fence. You've been in corporate America and then to the agency world, then back to corporate America, and then back to the agency world. So I think it's a It'll be uh, it'll be a fun discussion today, but let's let's start from the beginning. You know, where'd you go to school? What was your first job? Did you always wanted to do this? Give 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 our listeners kind of your background. Well, uh, I went to Cornell University in upstate New York. Um, I started as a science major until I took a science course, and then I uh, and then I quickly shifted to business. And when I came out of school, um, like many people of my generation, I took a job on Wall Street. Um, but unlike many of my peers, I hated it. Um, in fact, I thought anybody who said they loved their job was either crazy or lying. Um, so I did that for a couple of years, and then I decided uh, I wanted to switch careers and thought that I could get into what was then sort of a nascent field of sports marketing. Uh, but I took it a slightly different path. I actually went back and got my MBA at uh, Columbia University in New York, and uh, I finished most of my requirements, if not all, the first year. So I spent the second year of the two-year program uh, writing a business plan, taking courses in entrepreneurship to create uh, an event marketing company. So uh, coming out of school, there was a recession. Um, I had difficulty finding a job in sports marketing, so I took a job in management, traditional management consulting. And uh, to this day, it's probably the best career move I made outside of the sports industry because it taught me um, skills and uh, other things that I have used virtually every day in my career in sports. Everything from problem solving to collaboration to taking a methodical approach to a business situation to one of the most important things I've found in being um, in corporate consulting, i.e. Uh, consulting to brands, um, is learning their business learning their industry, learning their challenges in a very um, quick way in order to get up to speed fast. Yeah, it's so, interesting how it, it probably taught you how to organize your thinking um, and, and, and a point to be to be effective in looking at a problem solver, you know, how, how to go through that process. 
Yeah, that's a very good point. And it was almost like a second MBA on top of the one that I had just completed. The real I, MBA. <laughs> right. And, and one that fortunately I was getting paid for. Um, but, uh, but on nights and weekends, I was, uh, I was working on the business plan for my event marketing agency. And I finally, after two years in management consulting, I decided it was time to launch it. And, um, as, as I like to tell people, it was successful by every measure, but one financially. Um, but one of the things that came out of it was I met, uh, a true visionary in our industry, somebody that you and I have talked about and both know, uh, Mark Dill Driscoll, who founded Momentum not once, but twice. And I met Dill through, uh, an event I was running and, uh, he, he, uh, he was kind enough to give me a job at his agency, um, at the time, right after they had, uh, acquired, uh, an agency from NWA or called Advent that brought in the corporate consulting side. So momentum at that point had combined the activation agency that Dill had created with, um, the corporate consulting practice that a guy by the name of Mark Daly had, had been running and brought it together under the momentum name. And so I came in at a very fortuitous time at the agency. Well, Dill's one of the most creative people I know and, and was, I think, way ahead of his time in terms of experiential marketing. And, and, and Driscoll's another guy that, um, um, I mean, Mark Dowling's another guy that I, I, I think hasn't got enough credit for, for being kind of cutting edge in terms of corporate consulting, too. So you got two unique personalities that combined, and then you're right in the thick of things there. So uh, what happened next? Yeah, so I got to learn from both of them, uh, and then uh, a, a, a Momentum alum went off to SFX, and if you recall, back then in, in the late 90s, SFX was rolling up all of these various agencies, and so I went to work at the experiential agency that was uh, at the time called Contemporary Marketing um, and headed up the client service um, piece of the business, overseeing all of our engagements. Um, at that point, the, the thought was that we would get more into sports and corporate consulting, but there was already a couple of different SFX agencies that did that. And we were told in no uncertain terms to sort of stay in our swimming lane. So, um, so I did that for a couple of years. Um, eventually, uh, SFX was, was sold to uh, Clear Channel. Um, some things were spun off. Uh, eventually, Clear Channel became Live Nation. Um, and I went on to a short stint at a small agency in New York before landing at, at IMG, um, running their Verizon business, which at the time was the, the largest engagement IMG consulting had. Um, I had worked on the Lucent Technologies business at Momentum and had developed a little bit of an expertise in the telecommunications space. And so uh, both my bosses at IMG and, and the client at Verizon who signed off on me leading that engagement um, saw value in that. So I, so I came on board at IMG consulting, um, at a, at a great, at a great time. Uh, Mr. McCormick was still very actively involved in, in running the agency. So to be in sort of the inside of seeing the way he ran his business was just a phenomenal experience. I had a buddy, um, I have a buddy, Mike Reichman who worked at, uh, IMG for a while. I'll tell you two stories about him. One is he'd be, he'd been working there for a while, and my current partner, Ron Cook, was doing some business with with Mark, um, and um, and 
he bumps into Reichman. Ron bumps into Reichman on the street with McCormick. And Mike worked at IMG and didn't know McCormick. And uh, and and Ron has the privilege privilege of introducing Mike to his boss. Uh, <laughs> and we, we had a good laugh about that. But the other thing Mike would tell me, there was a period of time, and Mike just did a cup of coffee at IMG, but there was a time when he would call me like every Tuesday morning at 8 o'clock and go, hey, it's Herschel Walker Day. And then he'd <laughs> hang up. And the next week he'd call me and go, it's Nancy Lopez Day. Because he was out trying to find revenue streams for all these athletes on that side of the side of the house. But, again, Mark McCormick is the legend. He created the business. Uh, and it had to be a really interesting time to be there. It, it was great. And uh, so I spent nearly five years there and then uh, was fortunate to get what at the time was my dream job, which was being in charge of sponsorships for a brand um, and and a quite a unique brand at that time. It was Singular Wireless, which at that point was the largest uh, wireless carrier in the country and was doing some really cutting edge things in terms of marketing and consumer engagement and sponsorships. If you recall, back when um, American Idol started, Singular came on board very early as a sponsor and allowed people to um, to text in their votes for who should win that particular episode and who would be named America's Idol. And um, I think to this day, it's the only texting program in the history of wireless where the revenue was more than just a rounding error in terms of how much it generated for the company. Because back then, um, very few people had an all-you-could-eat texting plan, which is what virtually everybody has now. You actually paid for every text you sent and received. Um, and so we, we drove significant revenue for that. But we had, we had sponsorships of a, of a NASCAR team. We had a sponsorship of the NCAA, several colleges and universities, and um, some music tours. And, and so it was a lot of fun. It was, uh, I, as a sports marketer, I felt like a kid in a candy store. I'm assuming that the work you had done at the agency for for Verizon really got you to understand the uh, that segment uh, of the industry in a way to be you know very very effective. Yeah, you learned a lot of things about you know in 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 the wireless industry. It came to acquisition, retention, and win back. How do you acquire new customers? How do you retain the ones you have? And how do you win back the ones you've lost? Um, and and so that drove probably ninety percent of what we did. And the other ten percent was, uh, if I I probably haven't used or heard this term in 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 over ten years, but ARPU, average revenue per user. How do you how do you get people to use the thing that they were keeping in their pocket um, and take it out of their pocket and use it? And um, whether that was to download ringtones or play games or to play music or, or, or watch videos or whatever it is, um, the more they used it, the more money we made, the more sticky our content became, and the more likely they were to remain with us as a customer. And so sports and music and other things that you could sponsor – became very powerful tools to drive engagement with consumers and get them to use their phone. It's really interesting today if we look at our phones and the utility of our phones and what we do. But at that point, that was very pioneering. I mean, this was anytime you could say, here's a new utilization of your handheld. That was fascinating times. 
Yeah, we were the only company and the first company that allowed you to watch every single March Madness game on your phone. Um, the, the, the networks had not retained those rights. They actually gave them to us. And I thought to myself, well, we better, <laughs> we better enjoy this now because when this deal comes up for renewal, there's no way on God's green earth they're going to let us keep these rights. And sure enough, they did. But for one year, we were, the, we were the only place that you could watch a March Madness game on your phone. And that drove tremendous adoption of our, of our video services. I remember being in a – we would always go to a first and second round game to a different city every year. I, I kind of had a, a, a pace where I would – you know, I never went to the first four. I never went to Dayton. And I, I guess at some point I'd like to do that just for the fun of it. But – I would always go to a first and second round city. Then I would stay home for the regionals. And then, of course, obviously had to go to the Final Four in my job at the NABC. But I remember being in California, actually being in uh, San Jose. And they had, in, in the Sharks arena, they had, you know, great, you know, capacity for, for you know, being able to, to get on your phone. And I remember watching March Madness on my phone because there were better games, <laughs> there were better games <laughs> than the games that I was physically watching, you know. And at that point, I was kind of like, "The world is changing." I, I am in an arena watching a live event, and I'm on my phone watching another event. Uh, yep. th- 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 yep. th- that was kind of the transformative time that I said, "This this thing's for real." People are going to use their phone much, much different than Ma Bell ever thought about. Yep, and you were very lucky that you were in a venue that allowed you to actually use your phone because that was a big challenge we found in many of the venues that we were in. The, 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 the bandwidth, the network just wasn't robust enough to handle all of the traffic that was going across it. So we would, we, this was before sort of, um, you know, 4G and even 3G at that point. Um, but we would bring in things called cows, sell on wheels to try to bump up the, capacity and venues but that was always the biggest challenge is were you going to be able to use your phone um during during a massive event like that it's still a problem in college athletics i mean we have so many arcade buildings and and ancient stadiums that are on one hand are just you know wonderful places to be but you just don't have any capacity to 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 have any broadband and um, yep and, you know, we're seeing a generation, and of course this year is such an, uh, an outlier, but we're seeing a generation of young people saying, you know, if I can't be connected, I'm probably not coming. Or if I come, <laughs> I'm not staying um, because I want to be connected all the time. And so there's been some significant changes. Now, did Singular, were, were they always a division of AT&T with that name, or were they a standalone that then got acquired by AT&T? Uh, it was a joint venture between, uh, well, AT&T owned 50% and Bell South owned 50%. Okay. So then AT&T exercised their, uh, exercised their, their option to buy their 50% of, uh, of singular that they did not own. And they actually then said, well, what the heck, while we're at it, let's buy Bell South too. Um, and folded that under the AT&T name. So, uh, you know, interesting story at the time, um, Singular had announced that it was going to have a uh, exclusive right to carry a uh, a new product called the iPhone. You may have heard of it. Um, <laughs> and the, the the legend has it that Steve Jobs called um, the president of Singular Wireless at that point and said, "There's no way you can change your name to AT and T. It's the most uncool name in corporate America." Um, 
but Wendy Clark, who was um, who has gone on to amazing things in the advertising industry, ran all the brand for AT and T at that point, and uh, you know was very clear that the research that they had showed that um, AT and T was at that point was a blank slate, and they would they would be able to create the brand that they wanted to, and not surprisingly, she was right. And so, AT, you know, when when Singular rebranded as AT and T, there were some people who were upset because Singular was such an iconic brand, but um, the heft and power of the AT&T brand name just vaulted the, the wireless business to, you know, unheard of heights after that. So you're there through kind of a lot of trans, a lot of corporate transformation. <laughs> um, you kind of really kind of went from being um, almost a startup kind of mentality. And, and, and now you're in, you know, you're beholding to the mothership, <laughs> And, and yeah, I, yeah, that, yeah, that's how, no, how that's do, different. Yeah, yeah. How do I say this diplomatically? Well, um, Singular was absolutely very entrepreneurial, and it's and it's the way it approached its business. If you had a good idea uh, and you brought it to somebody in charge, you could usually, if you had the budget, you could usually act on what you wanted to do. So whether it was, you know, putting you know putting twenty thousand dollars into a small Christian music tour to see whether that whether that audience you know, had the propensity to, to drive higher than average ARPU or, you know, creating a new, we created a whole new, um, a line of, uh, of events. We had a, our music store was called singular sounds and you, I referenced, uh, ringtones before we were selling something like, you know, $12 million a week in ringtones back before the iPhone launched. Um, and so we we worked with up and coming artists to create a live extension of that called Singular Sounds Live, where young up and coming artists would do small, intimate concerts with us and make their make their music available for sale. So you would have a live ringtone or a live uh, callback tone or we would take photos at the concert and you would sell those at wallpaper. And we worked with some artists who went on to some amazing things. Um you know, we worked with uh, Rihanna when she was first starting the Pussycat Dolls, uh, Flo Rida, Pitbull. Uh, you know, some of the established artists we worked with were like Ludacris and, and uh, 50 Cent. So, yeah, it was it was, you know, we went from I wouldn't call it the wild, wild west, but certainly an entrepreneurial um, environment to one in which, you know, I spent half my time talking to lawyers um, at AT&T because it was so conservative and they were so concerned with you know, how our contracts were structured and how we were doing things on the sponsorship side. And I used to say if this whole, you know, telco thing didn't work out for me, I would have been very well positioned to take a job in the federal government um, because of the bureaucracy involved. Well, I want to go a little deeper on this for a minute. Um, I think what y'all were doing with what I call small tests is brilliant. Uh, and I find that too few corporations do that. They don't have a fund over here to experiment with in the sponsorship industry. That's always been kind of my my feeling that, you know, people will say, no, we're only doing these two or three things. That's all we do. And, and yet y'all went the other direction. I mean, you said, no, 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 let's test a bunch of things because they all reach unique audience segments that might proved to be beneficial why do you think people don't do don't emulate that behavior I, I i think the cost of failure not the financial cost but the cost of failure has become too high when you feel like um 
when you feel like if you do something and it doesn't succeed, you're going to be viewed on viewed unfavorably by your bosses, or you're going to be viewed unfavorably by your audience. Um, the cost of failure becomes too high. Um, and I think singular, what singular did at the time was didn't look at the cost of failure. They looked at the, the, the value of success. So they looked at it fundamentally differently. Um, we were making money quite well. We had a very, you know, when I say it was entrepreneurial, it was, there was still a lot of, um, uh, processes in place, right? I couldn't just go out and spend money the way I wanted to. I had a budget that I had to be approved. I had a signing authority above which I had to get approval up the chain of command. So there were, there were controls in place that didn't let me go off and do whatever I wanted to do. But if we would go in and say, we want to go after this audience because it's somebody that we haven't spoken to before in any meaningful way, they would say, okay, go for it. And, and, you know, we would see, and if it didn't work out, you what was $20,000 to a company that was, you know, I don't even know what they were spinning off in terms of EBITDA at that point, but you know, let's let the, let's let the kid who runs sponsorships do it. Yeah. I like, I like the mad scientist approach. I mean, you know, we, at at our agency, we have this funny saying, we say we don't check homework for adults. Um, and, and, but in corporate America, they do, (laughs) unfortunately, you know, and, and part, you know, going back to my MBA for a moment, Right. There's very few things that I can look back on uh, and take from my MBA. But there was one thing in particular. There was a gentleman by the name of Edward Deming. And for those of you Dr. who are Deming, sort of. Yeah. yeah. So Edward Deming has the Deming Prize, which is given out in J- Japan, um, is much like the Malcolm Baldridge Award for quality. And he was he was the godfather of modern management. And I was very fortunate to take the last course that Dr. Deming ever taught. He was in his early 90s at that point, and he taught, uh, he taught a, a, question, a class on quality. And he said something really, really interesting. He said, in corporate America, you have five people looking at your expense report. If you have somebody who needs five people to look at their expense report, then you have that wrong person in that position. Um, you need to put people in place that you trust who have the skills and the, uh, not only the responsibility, but the authority to get things done. And that was one of the things that I greatly appreciated about Singular is they gave us not only the responsibility, but the authority. And it's, it, it's the way I have approached my management style as well, right? If I have somebody in place, um, I, I damn well better trust them to do what they've um, been hired to do or else I need to find somebody else to do it. Yeah, I've talked about recruiting a personality profile historically at our agency, and it's always been someone that played a team sport or played in a band or was in a play because you got to play together. But, you know, as a coach or as an agency head, you got to put people in a position to be successful, but then you got to let them play. I mean, and you got to let them play without fear of repression percussions and 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 that means they got the right to fail once in a while (laughs) you know you don't want to make the same mistake over and over again but clearly i've said if you don't make mistakes in your career then you've played it too safe i mean you know yeah and we learn more from failure than we do from success and we learn and build off of it so it's interesting that a 90 year old dr deming (laughs) would be that astute to say it's all about putting the right people in the right places yeah, 
it was it was a it was a uh, it was a lesson that definitely stuck with me um, and has you know all these years later for sure. So you, you know, know we, you, you know, know we used to, I'm, go ahead. I'm no, sorry. keep going. No, keep the going. last thing no. I was just, just going to say is, you know, what we what we used to be asked though is, you know, after a program, what'd you learn, right? Not how you know, not how much money you made, although that question was ultimately asked. But you know, what what was the return on the investment? Well, what did you learn? What did you learn that will drive our business forward? And that's a that's a fundamentally different question than you know, you know, how did how did it fail, right? What did you learn? Well, it forces reflection. And, yes. and I think a lot of times we get on such a treadmill that we don't stop to reflect. And the reflection may be the most valuable thing that we do, but we don't do it because we don't schedule time to reflect because we're on to the next thing. And it's, it's interesting that y'all did have that process of saying, okay, you know, what'd you learn? You know, what, what have you learned that you can build on? So you leave the corporate world and you go back to the craziness of the agency world. I did. I, uh, I, they, this, the old saying isn't true. You can go home again. So I actually returned to IMG. They had just gone through a restructuring. Um, and, uh, and I was, I was brought back in to, to run consulting for the Americas. Um, and at that, by that point, Mr. McCormick had passed away. He passed away shortly before I, I had left five years earlier. Um, and uh, it was being run by private equity, by Forsman Little and Ted, Ted Forsman in particular. And it was a very different agency that I returned to than the one I had left. There was much more structure and process in place. Um, the consulting practice had gr- grown dramatically. Um, and, but many of the same people were there. So in many ways, it was like coming home. But it was, it was coming home to a, a remodeled home. And, um, and it was... Uh, you know, it was it was the biggest job I had in terms of span of control, in terms of um, profitability, uh, responsibility, and making numbers. And um, I enjoyed it immensely. Um, but unfortunately, Mr. Forsman took ill and ultimately passed away. Um, and in preparation for, um, you know, selling the company, uh, ultimately, obviously, to to endeavor William Morris Endeavor at that point. Um, you know, my position was eliminated. I left. Um, and, and, you know, began this crazy journey of, of being on my own, but, uh, but, but having the opportunity to go back to IMG, um, was, was great. And, and, uh, you know, work with some really great, smart people, you know, some of whom are, are my closest friends to this day. Well, having worked on both sides of the, of the fence, talk about some of the things that agencies need to know about working with corporations and then vice versa. What do corporations need to know about working with agencies? Yeah. What agencies need to know is that your client's not as dumb as you think they are. I think <laughs> yeah. uh, there, there is. That's too good. I, I, I did remind people sometimes that the client lived lives of quiet desperation though. <laughs> that, yeah. they, they were in a cube somewhere where somebody was coming down the hall to make sure they weren't playing video games on their phone. But uh, nevertheless, yeah. uh, I, I do agree with you. <laughs> There is, a, there is a tendency for agencies to sort of think that they can, you know, solve all of their clients' problems, that all the client needs to do, if the client were just smart enough to step away and let the agency do what they, they need to do, everything would be great. But there's a couple of problems with that. Number one, your, your clients are not dumb. There's some of the smartest people I know have been clients of mine. Number two, 
clients have to, um, you know, as you said, they lead lives of quiet desperation. But part of that desperation is how do I, how do I demonstrate value on a continual basis to my bosses here in corporate America? Because many corporations are constantly under that pressure, um, you know, to, to run lean and mean. So, uh, you know, so they need to they need to demonstrate that value. So they need there are certain things they have to do that they can't engage their agencies in. And what I like to tell young people who work for me is if you strip away everything that you do as an agency for a client, whether you're their experiential agency or their social agency or their consultants, your job is twofold. Make your clients jobs easier and make them look smarter in front of their bosses. And if you can do those two things, you'll typically be well positioned to maintain your role as your client's agency. Um, and I've always tried to take that approach. Now, what, what clients can do, what corporations can do to make their agency's job easier is, number one, clearly articulate what it is that you want your client to do. Give, give clear direction. Give, give realistic deadlines and firm deadlines, but firm deadlines whenever possible, and understanding that sometimes you're not going to be able to give them realistic deadlines. And number, number three, um, let, the, let the agency fill in or complement those things that aren't your particular strengths or areas of expertise. Um, I had a client, uh, Visa, and they had running sponsorships was gentleman by the name of Michael Lynch. And Michael was um, extremely well regarded in, in the industry, very smart, very hardworking, very, uh, a reputation for being a tough, tough client to deal with. Um, but he ran a, an incredibly successful sponsorship group and portfolio at Visa. And when I came back to IMG and inherited them as one of my clients, I flew out um, to Northern California, to Foster City, um, where, where Visa was based. And I sat down with Michael and Michael said, I know American football. I know the Olympics and I'm learning global football. Those are the three things that really drive our sponsorship uh, initiatives here at Visa. But I spend all of my time on those three things. So I need you to tell me what else, what else is going on in the world. I need you to make me smarter. I want your thought leadership. That's why we're paying you guys. And I just thought it was incredibly clear, incredibly good direction from a client to give. And every month I'd get on a plane and go out to, to Visa and sit down with Michael. And we would talk, and I would, you know, sometimes I would come in and talk about what was going on uh, in terms of ROI, what some of our other clients were looking to do in terms of measuring ROI. Sometimes I would talk to him about what companies in completely different industries were doing in terms of activating their sponsorships. It really, it really depended on the month. And um, I developed a good rapport with Michael through that. And I think he appreciated what, what we were able to do for him um, in terms of making him a little smarter in areas where he didn't have the time to put his uh, focus, his time and, and energy on because he was so busy with the other things that he was responsible for. Yeah, it's interesting that he really gave you clear um, direction. And I, I think a lot of times I've seen agencies struggle with clients when there's not clear direction. And so you kind of wander around hoping that something's going to stick. Um, and that's usually a formula for failure from that standpoint. Talk a little bit about what you're doing in your agency today. Really, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm loath to call it an agency because that, that makes it seem much bigger than it is. It's really, you know, it's me. 
Um, the nice thing is that, you know, for the last 96 months, I've, I've won employee of the month, uh, because <laughs> I am the only, I am the only person. Um, but I, but I, I left IMG in the beginning of 2012 and had the worst case of good luck in terms of finding clients to launch my own initiatives. Um, but I sort of, you know, I, I was continuing to look for what my wife called a real job at that point. And I got a couple of offers and I turned them down. And the first time I turned down an offer, I said, what are you doing? But by the second or third time, when I had really started to develop a rhythm with some of my clients, I, I, I stopped looking for a full-time job um, with, a, with a typical or a traditional employer, whether it be a brand or an agency or a property. Um, but interestingly, I, um, you know, I, I, most of my work at that point when I first came out was working with properties. And their, and their rationale or their reason that they gave me for working with me is they said, because you've worked with you know, brands for so many years, we'd love to get your perspective to make us smarter and how we approach our partners, either upselling or renewing our existing partners or finding new partners. Um, but I did get some, some brand side clients. Um, so I did that for several years. I went back to an agency in Atlanta, um, CSE, now known as you are here for a couple of years, um, and enjoyed that immensely, but left uh, almost two years ago to the day right now, um, and went back out on my own. And for the last two years, um, most of my work has really been on uh, the traditional corporate consulting, working with brands on he helping them either articulate their sponsorship strategy or execute on it. But I've branched out into other areas like con uh, content marketing, influencer marketing. Um, I've done some a lot of strategy work with some media companies. And so it's, uh, you know, an another thing that I that I learned in business school from my mentor there who was a retired CEO was, he, he said, you, you, your, your attention span is as long as your pinky. And so you've got to make sure that you're able to constantly be challenged and constantly be, um, you know, excited about what you do. And so the, so the fact that I'm able to work with different clients on different types of engagements um, really scratches that itch about being constantly challenged and constantly excited about new and different things. Yeah, it reminds so, me of a story. You, you went to Cornell. The best boss I ever had was a guy named Chuck Jarvie, who also went to Cornell. He, he, he graduated number one in his class, and he was smart enough to marry the woman that graduated number one in the class, um, and so which proved early on that he knew what he was doing. But he told me one time, he said, he said Rick, you're never going to be rich. And I said, well, why is that, Chuck? He said, because you get bored too easily. <laughs> and he proved to be correct. I'm, I like to do different things. I like the ability to – I can't imagine having one job my whole career um, and not having the chance to be creative. And, and what you're doing between working with brands and working with uh, properties is, is really, you know, uniquely different every day. And I think that's got to be – a lot of fun. Yeah. I, you know, I, I think that, uh, and, and I've been very lucky because you don't always have the luxury of picking who you get to work with, but I have had the luxury of being able to work with some really smart, really nice, um, really interesting people on some really interesting properties, um, and, and clients. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm I count my blessings every day. Well, tell me how things have changed since COVID. Oh boy. Um, 
Well, uh, you know, when, when this whole thing hit, I had a number of brandside clients. Um, and as the properties that they were sponsoring shut down, um, you know, my, my work virtually dried up, um, not overnight, but within, you know, three or four weeks. And, you know, the question I was being asked is, well, you know, what do we do about make goods? And my first point was, well, the first thing we need to do is figure out what you've lost before we can ask what you need to be made good on. So I spent, I spent more time that first month sort of looking at force majeure clauses of my client's contracts than I had, you know, over the course of my you know, entire career. That was, that was always sort of considered boilerplate language and let the lawyers worry about that. Um, I can assure you that no, no property um, sponsor or, or agency helping that sponsor is ever going to consider force majeure language uh, boilerplate ever again. Um, and so, so the spring was, was, was bad. I mean, there, I, I had no work. I had zero work. Um, I, the can summer, relate, I can relate to that. It's been a tough yeah, year. And, and I, yeah, and I don't think our situation is unique by any means, but I tried to keep a positive attitude. Um, I, you know, I've been doing this long enough to have gone through a couple of recessions and 9-11 and, um, you know, things ultimately do turn around. Sometimes it takes much longer than we hope or think, but the world was not coming to an end. And I think many people sort of thought that once it, you know, when we got into late March and April, people sort of not literally coming to an end, but when will sports ever come back? How bad will this pandemic get? And it's been bad. And we turn, we, things get better and now we're in another wave. And, um, but I do believe we are on the backside of this, meaning we are closer to a vaccine than we are to the beginning of the pandemic. But Unfortunately, we're going to have many more cases and, and tragically, we're going to have many more deaths until we come out of this. But we will come out of this. Um, and, uh, you know, my business is, is slowly starting to pick up again. Um, it is not where it was before the pandemic. Um, and I don't think it will be until probably, you know, late Q1, early Q2 at the earliest at this point. And even then, who knows? That's, you know. Four or five months from now is is an eternity in this during this pandemic. But but I, I you know I maintain a I maintain a positive attitude because it's it's the only way I know how to to get through days that sometimes days are really tough. So if anybody's out there listening to this, if you know, find me on LinkedIn or Twitter or Facebook, and uh, if you need a uh, you know if you need a pep talk, I'm I'm happy to give one because there have been. Many people who have given me pep talks over the last eight months on this thing. Well, your positivity is contagious. And I know one of the things that you do is each week on LinkedIn, you ask people to nominate those for the nice guy or the nice gal awards. Talk, talk, talk a little bit about why you did that. I, I'm, I'm a big fan of, of recognizing good human beings at a time that it seems like we need to do more of that. Well, well thank you. Yeah. So, I was talking to somebody uh, at a at an industry event, and I'm I uh, a, a gentleman's name, uh, a dear friend of mine, Steve Zen, who I spent many years with at, at IMG. His name came up in the conversation, and I said he's a really nice guy, uh, not just for our industry, just he's a really nice guy. Same conversation, a few minutes later, um, Mark Tatum who is the deputy commissioner of the NBA, another friend, I, I found myself saying the same thing. I said, he's a really nice guy. 
And, you know, I, I'm slow, but I'm not dumb or I'm dumb. I'm not dumb, but I'm slow. Whatever, whatever the saying is, a few days later, I thought to myself, you know, we, we don't recognize nice people enough. There's no sort of forum to recognize people just for being nice. And it's not as common as we would like or hope or think. And thus was born these nice guy awards. And so every week on LinkedIn, I accept nominations for people um, who want to recognize their friends or peers or colleagues or mentors or whoever they think it is who is just a nice person, you know. And I, I, I open up the nominations every week and I said, let's, let's recognize people just for being nice. And it's as simple as that. And I have met so many people through it. I've been able to recognize so many great people. And selfishly, I, I nominate somebody every week um, uh, that's been, had a positive impact on my life. And um, it's, it's, that's, that's, that was the only intent, to recognize people for being nice. Um, uh, just a small gesture from a knucklehead on LinkedIn. That's all. Well, I like it a lot, and I think it's been very valuable for us at a time that we've all been in a kind of a dark place. It's nice to see some sunshine. You know, I feel like we could talk for another two hours, but I got to let you run. I want to get you back soon, but thanks, Tim, again for being with us today from the bridge. You're welcome, Rick. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I really, really enjoyed our conversation. I told you today I was going to make a non-political statement on the soapbox, but the more I think about it, hmm, there may be a little politics in this statement too, post-election. This soapbox is entitled, Anyone Can Predict Rain. I need someone to build me an ark. Several years ago, my wife gave me a miniature Noah's Ark complete with wooden animals that now sits in my office. When one of my staff would come in with a problem, I would often just point to the ark. I did not need my staff members to bring me problems. I needed them to bring me suggested solutions to the problem. We'd get to work together then, but not before. Too often we do the obvious and only predict rain without also starting to figure out how to build that ark. Kind of sounds like the last election. It's okay to go to others for suggestions on how to solve some of your problems, but it's not okay to depend on someone for those answers. It's better to have them react to your suggested solution than to just sit back and wait for them to give you the answer. The world loves and depends on problem solvers. The ark builders inherited the earth, and that remains true to this day. And that's your soapbox. We'll close today's podcast with another On the Road with Rick segment. In talking to Tim, it reminded me of one of my favorite Italian restaurants in New York City, the famous Patsy's on 56th Street in Midtown, New York, near the theater district. It's the classic old school Italian place. It was started in 1944 and it's still run by the same family. And in fact, it's been in this exact location 
on 56th Street since 1954, which is 66 years ago, and I know that because that's the year I was born. They have truly great food. Appetizers like stuffed artichokes and eggplant rollatini. They have wonderful pastas, as you would expect, and Italian seafood and meat dishes. I love the Ville Francese. Plus, we have a family story about Patsy's. A few years ago, I took my mama and my aunt to New York. Both of these wonderful ladies have passed on. And at that time, they were getting, you know, up in their age. And uh, I was going to meetings, and Charlotte had to take care of my mom and my aunt during the week. And neither one of them seemed to be very interested in crossing the streets in any kind of hurry in New York. And finally, you know, Charlotte had to remind them both, they will run over you here. You need to kind of move. Quit acting like old people. So I take them to Patsy's. We sit and I remind them that this restaurant was Frank Sinatra's very favorite restaurant in New York. He loved Patsy's. And I reminded them that a guy named Tony Bennett often came in to eat dinner. Well, guess what happened? When we finished our dinner, we went back downstairs to get our coats, and in walked Tony Bennett. And suddenly, my 76-year-old mama and my 81-year-old aunt turned 16, Oh, Mr. Bennett, uh, I mean, it was unbelievable. And they competed with each other for Tony Bennett's affections. And he was so classy and so kind and spent so much of his time. He was there to eat dinner, but instead he spent time with them. Now, we thought for a minute, they've turned 16, we'll be able to get back to the hotel. Nah, we walked outside and they immediately turned old again, and we had to get them across the street. It's a great family story about a wonderful place, Patsy's in the Big Apple, on the road with Rick. Well, that's our show for the day. We hope to see you here, back here again next week from the bridge.